Welcome in to Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf here. And the Knicks lost to the Magic, but I'm just going to choose to ignore that today and not cover that game at all. I don't think it's a game that anybody particularly wants to hear about anyway. At this point in the season, the Knicks losing to a lottery team. Instead, as promised, I have a really great interview today with Harvey Ariton, who was a former beat writer for the Knicks, uh, a former NBA reporter who still does some work for the New York Times, and most importantly, the author of the book, When the Garden Was Eden. And we talk about Willis Reed, the recently departed captain of the Knicks, the forever captain of the Knicks. And so I had a great talk with Harvey, and I'll get into it next on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes right now. Starts without a five. Ewing for the win. Yes. Up, up left. Now fires it. He's good. And he's fouled. And he's out. Anthony for three. All right, welcome in to Locked On Knicks, and I want to thank you guys for making Locked On Knicks your first listen today and every day, whether you're checking us out on your favorite podcast platform or taking in the sights and sounds on YouTube. I appreciate you making us a part of your daily routine. Make sure to subscribe wherever it is that you listen or watch and also hit the notification bell or the auto download function so you never miss an episode like this great one that's coming up. I'm Alex Wolf. I'm editor-in-chief of Nick's site, The Strickland, which you can find at thestrick.land. And as I said in the intro, I am joined by Harvey Ariton, who is a legend as far as Nick's writers are concerned, at least as far as I'm concerned, writer of When the Garden Was Eden and just an absolute treasure trove of facts about the championship Knicks teams having both grown up watching those teams and then grown into a role as a beat writer and an NBA reporter after that. And then of course, writing one of the best Knicks books ever uh, later on. So I, I was super excited to have this conversation with Harvey. We did a really long, uh, four-part podcast with him back during COVID talking about these teams at length, but I wanted to revisit and talk about Willis Reed with him as a way to, to remember Willis and also do him justice because Gavin and I mentioned on the show the other day that we didn't quite feel right being able to speak on Willis Reed because he's just, you know, neither of us were even born during his heyday and you know that we weren't even really around for like the 90s Knicks let alone the 70s Knicks uh so we always like to get better perspectives from people that were there and know these people better so uh, I won't hold us up anymore uh let's get into the interview with Harvey about the great Willis Reed all right as promised I am joined by Harvey Ariton uh who authored When the Garden Was Eden which if you haven't read it 
one of the best Knicks books uh, out there, and certainly the, in my opinion, the best book to read if you want to learn about the 1970 and 73 title teams. Also, just a couple years ago, authored our last season about his friendship with longtime Knicks season ticket holder Michelle Musler. Uh, also, was the Knicks beat writer starting in 1978 till around 1985, then an NBA writer for various outlets, including the New York Times. Uh, where he still writes to this day. Harvey, how are you? Uh, thank you so much for joining me, first off. And I'm, I'm very excited to talk about Willis Reed with you and, and hopefully do some justice to his legacy. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a uh, second day uh, since we uh, got the news, and it's still, I think, particularly for those of us of a certain age, uh, with the baby boom generation, New Yorkers, it's uh, losing Willis was really like losing a, a you know a big primary chunk of our youth. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. I think Gavin and I were sort of talking about this when we were trying to honor Willis on our show and uh, you know our show yesterday, and sort of were like, you know, it's it's tough for us to fully appreciate how much he meant to that generation, right? Like Clyde, I think is the the unique you know the the most one of the most unique sports players ever in the sense that he meant a ton to your generation and also means a ton to our generation thanks to his his work in the announcing booth and how much of a character he is but Willis Reed is a guy that I feel like my generation never really got to know super well you know he would he, he would show up for team events and stuff and obviously you can watch as many highlights as you want but it just doesn't quite compare to being in the moment um, obviously you lived it, you know, you were, you were part of the city at that time. You grew up a Knicks fan, you know, you got to experience those titles in person. Like, I, I guess the first question, I was actually going to save this for later, but I'll just lead with it. Like, how will you remember Willis Reed as someone who was there? I, I guess I'll start with as a player before you got to know him. Like, how do you remember the legacy that he left, like on the city and on the game of basketball and everything from from those title runs? Well, he represents an era where the game was very different. The league was very different. Um, it was much more, um, you know, localized. Uh, it was not a natural phenomenon. It was the age before, you know, all the Nike commercials and. Um, you know, that was really something that was pioneered by, by Michael Jordan in the 90s, uh, the 80s and the 90s. But uh, Willis was sort of like, um, you know, he was, he, we like to remember uh, our athletes as <coughs> these strong, uh, dignified, uh, team-oriented, uh, you know, people. And he personified that, uh, you know, as much as anyone, I think, Whoever played any major sport in New York City, and uh, you know, somebody asked me the other day, uh, you know, that why is Willis considered when we talk about all the captains that we've had, Mark Messier and um, you know Thurman Munson, why is why is uh, among others uh, why is Willis considered to be the captain, and <clears throat> you constantly hear him referred to, and I think you know for two reasons, one. Um, it was the way he carried himself, uh, the kinds of leadership that, that he showed, uh, probably, 
you know, most probably I would say, you know, in the in that extreme way, um, the uh, the game seven, um, you know, coming out uh, stiff-legged and limping around for however many minutes he played in that game to inspire the Knicks to to win the seventh game of the of the finals against the Lakers. Um, so you know that quiet, dignified leadership, uh, and um, I and I think I think that also you know the Knicks uh, more than any other team. I, I've said this many times. But more than any other team in New York uh, over the last 50 years, the Knicks were the ultimate unifying team. Um, you know, they won those two championships. They're the only championships the franchise has won. So, of course, Willis and those guys are held up to a, you know, a much higher level. Um, and But in terms of u- the, uni- the unifying uh, element, uh, when you think about by even by 1969-70, <coughs> excuse me, we already had... You know, in football, the Jets had already won a Super Bowl with Joe Namath. So the city was divided between, you know, Jet fans and, and Giants fans. Um, you know, baseball, the Mets uh, were only, you know, eight or nine years old, but they had won the World Series uh, in 69. So the city was already divided between Yankees and Mets, American and National League fans. Uh, the Knicks of, of that era... Uh, yes, the, the 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 Nets, the ABA Nets, were playing out in Long Island, but they were really, you know, it was an afterthought. They were barely on the radar, and uh, didn't become, you know, uh, a, a force until Julius Irving was leading them to a couple of ABA championships in the years before the merger. So, you know, and, and on top of that, Madison Square Garden, more than any other arena, is really in the heart, right in the heart of Manhattan. Of, of the city, and so you add all those things together, and I think uh, you know Willis Reed uh, represents something uh, <clears throat> to the, to New York uh, even more so than I think than, than Walt Frazier, uh, because that that iconic night, uh, even though Frazier stole the show, I mean he really won the game for them, uh, but Willis coming out and playing and hitting the first two shots, it really uh, was the kind of dramatic moment that. Um, you know, people have been talking about for, for a couple of generations now. Uh, he set the standard for what playing in pain really is. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, um, I think will live on for, you know, many, many years. All right. I'll be right back in with Harvey in just a moment. We got plenty more to get into about Willis Reed, including a really, really fun and touching story at the end that harvey tells as well as a bunch of other stories in between it just such a wellspring of knowledge harvey was during this episode so very excited for you to hear the rest but i do just have to real quick award nissan's most electric player of the week brought to you by the all-new all-electric 2023 nissan aria and i think i don't know that he's gotten one of these yet but i think that rj barrett is our Nissan most electric player of the week. He got his stuff together as far as scoring the basketball. Even when his three-point shot is not falling lately, he's been getting to the hoop and you know, really uh taking advantage of his physical gifts. He's he's been brilliantly fierce getting to the getting to the rim and quite frankly electric, getting all the way in there and finishing through contact and also generating free throws 
it's been pretty stunningly powerful when you watch RJ Barrett play. That's that's just kind of one of those things that you think of. You know, he's he's stunningly powerful. Uh, for someone who's not necessarily the biggest guy on the court, he always gets where he wants to go and always has the power to do so. And he delivers on duality. Okay, maybe now I'm more talking about the Nissan Aria at this point. With a combination of fierceness and elegance, beautiful but strong. The perfect SUV crossover. And the 2023 Nissan Aria packs pin you to your seat power and premium intelligence all-in-one EV. The all-new, all-electric 2023 Nissan Aria. The EV for people who love to drive. Shop now at NissanUSA.com. Yeah, I think the whole playing in pain thing really wound up being, or playing through pain, I guess would be the way to put it, really wound up being sort of a a consistent theme throughout his career because he had that he had that moment in game seven and then goes through just tons of knee injuries leading up to the 73 win even, and yet still even then perseveres enough and puts together, you know, a great 73 season to win a second finals MVP. Um, I, I think that his achievements, you know, given what he was able to accomplish before his body sort of ultimately gave out on him, which, you know, is, it, it was something that was more likely to happen back then. You know, if you had a bulky knee or something, medical science wasn't where it is now. Like it would, it would affect you more. I, I think that pound for pound, like his career is one of the more impressive in NBA history as far as, you know, championships won accolades accumulated and everything that he was able to accomplish in the relatively small amount of time that he was able to do it uh before his his body ultimately didn't let him do it anymore um i mean i'll just uh, you wrote this you wrote the uh obituary uh for willis in the new york times which was beautiful if anybody hasn't gotten to read that yet but listed out his accomplishments nba's mvp in the 69 to 70 season um, and the MVP of the uh, finals that year, as well as all-star MVP. Uh, and then he also was a rookie of the year as a quote unquote, second round pick. I mean, it, it's different standards. I was listening back to our pod that we did with you back in 2020 when we were reminiscing on these teams. And it's, it, that's always a funny note to me that he was a quote, second round pick, but was like the eighth pick overall <laughs> um, or seventh pick overall. There were only a handful of teams. Yeah, and it, by the way, it infuriated him that he was picked in the quote second round, even though it was the eighth or ninth pick, whatever. Uh, and the Knicks picked a guy named Jim Barnes, Jim Bad News Barnes, ahead of him, and he vowed that you know he would win Rookie of the Year, and you know he went out and did. He was the kind of guy who he loved challenges. Um, you know, he he uh, you know he he loved the idea that. Um, you know, he was a bit of an underdog because he, you know, he, first of all, he played at Grambling, so he was not coming out of one of the, you know, the, the big D1 basketball powers. Many black players in that era did play at the historically black, black colleges. Um, but he, he loved these challenges and, you know, improving people wrong. And one of the things about Willis, um, you know, he's undersized center for that era, um, you know, playing against Wilt and Neat Thurmond and, uh, all those guys and uh, Bill Russell was also on the other side, side. But, uh, I always said that if you look at Willis's game, uh, it really, in my opinion, translates well to the modern game. I mean, he had a 
really nice, soft touch from about 17, 18 feet. So if you project, you know, what the game has become with the three-point line, uh, he, the guy was strong as an ox. There's no doubt in my mind that if he had gone out and practiced, you know, jump shots from 23 feet, that he wouldn't have come, become a proficient shooter. He was he was lefty. He was mobile. He could put the ball on the floor. Uh, you know, it was always a problem for a guy like Will Chamberlain to come out and guard Willis Reed. Uh, so when when you look at his game, he handled the ball well. He passed the ball well. I think he would have he would have <clears throat> you know done very well in the modern game, which you know is a is a great tribute you know to anyone who played that long ago and 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 you know knowing how the game has evolved through the decades. Uh, Willis Reed could have played in any era. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm convinced of that. Yeah, I've always I've always thought in a in a kind of funny way to to reference him to another uh, more contemporary Nick like the the mid-range shooting was almost Amari Stoudemire-esque uh you know just that elbow jumper that was just automatic and that was if I recall and correct me if I'm wrong that was sort of the part of Willis's game that struck fear in Wilt Chamberlain was the fact that he could shoot out into the mid-range and that Wilt would then have to come out and that just completely disrupted his flow of being like the guy at the rim, protecting the rim. All of a sudden he had this guy that he had to come out on and play against and couldn't like it, it would draw him away from the hoop where he wanted to be. And that was exactly what Wills did in that game seven was come out and just drill a couple of jumpers just to sort of send a statement. Um, but on uh, to your point on the other end, he didn't give up anything either and despite being a little undersized, especially for the time uh, as a center, he still was able to hold up against the the biggest guys in the league, like Will Chamberlain, like that. Well, he had tremendous upper body strength, and he understood positioning. Uh, don't get don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, he used to tell me, uh, for instance, uh, the night of Game Seven. You know, he, Willis always always said. I remember him telling me this one. I was down in Louisiana uh, visiting with him for a few days uh, when I was reporting my book. And, you know, he said, you know, everybody was going crazy when he walked out for Game 7. And he's thinking to himself as they're lining up, you know, and he's looking across the way at Will Chamberlain like, this is a hell of a situation you got yourself into. <laughs> you know, they're expecting a miracle, and I'm going up against Wilt. But by the same token, you know, I think... Um, that was a fascinating, by the way, that was a, that whole thing, the, the duel between Wilt and, um, and, and, uh, Willis was really interesting it was psychologically, I think, because what you have to remember is that Wilt Chamberlain had suffered a knee injury that season and missed much of the regular season and had made something of a heroic return for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 games of the regular season heading into the playoffs. So he also, you know, felt like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really putting myself out here. And then he comes into the, gets into the finals. And then Willis gets hurt in game five. And now he's the wounded warrior. And now nobody's thinking about, well, you know, Will, you know, he had a bad knee too. Plus, Willis was another guy from Louisiana, Bill Russell was born in Louisiana and moved to 
the Bay Area of California when he was a boy. Uh, but he was, he was another guy from Louisiana and left-handed, right? So now, like, Wilt, after suffering all those indignities, you know, against Russell through the years when he was playing Philadelphia against the Celtics, now he's dealing with, like, another version, you know? And although, you know, Willis was a more polished offensive player than Bill Russell, uh, especially when he was healthy, I think it played with Wilt's mind a little bit because, you know, Willis got hurt in, in game five and the Knicks, you know, swarmed him with undersized guys. They had Nate Bowman, who was a center, but foul prone. And then they had Dave Stallworth and even DeBusher, who was like, barely was 6-6. And, you know, but they presented a problem for Wilt, you know, on defense. So the Knicks managed to win that game. But then they go back to L.A. and Wilt destroys the Knicks without Willis, you know, playing in that game. He had like 45 points or something like that, just dunking on people and just you know, having his own way uh, every time down the court. So now you're thinking, all right, you know, Willis may play, but he's going to be a shell of himself. Wilt is going to dominate this game. And yet, I think there was that, you know, that question like, why is this happening to me? i got to go up against this guy. You know, I can't. I'm expected to dominate and win. And, you know, sometimes when guys go into a game like that, it messes with their mind a little bit. And, you know, legend has it that, and many people in my reporting for the book said that they saw Wilt, you know, lurking, watching Willis warm up a little bit. Uh, Don May, who was a, uh, a, uh, a bench player on that Knicks team, was rebounding for Willis, you know, much earlier before the, you know, the, the fans were in the building warming up, trying to, you know, test his, his leg, um, and that they could see Wilt's head poking above the lower stand, you know, checking out what Willis was up to. And um, George Kalinske, the famous garden photographer, told me that West had to come pull him away from the vicinity of the Nick locker room because he was trying to find out whether Willis was going to play. And then this dramatic entrance. So all this stuff is going on. And, you know, and the truth is is that Willis really didn't have to do all that much because hit the first two shots and then, you know, Clyde went from there. Uh, so, you know, he was the MVP of the series. And I think, I think even Willis would have admitted, uh, that it was a sentimental choice, uh, because Frazier really was the dominant player in that game. All right. I'll be right back in with Harvey in just a moment to finish up talking about the legend Willis Reed. And there's a really great story at the end of the episode that you're not going to want to miss. So I would encourage you to see it all the way through. But first, I just got to tell you guys that today's show is brought to you by Ibotta. We're always throwing money at something, kids' school supplies, a new house project. The list goes on. I know I got some house projects coming up. It's time to stop spending your hard-earned money without getting anything in return. Enter Ibotta. You can earn cash back on every shopping trip. Ibotta gives you cash back on hundreds of grocery items from produce to personal care to pantry goods. Either link your loyalty account or upload your receipt after you shop. And you can get your cash back. It really is that easy. The average Ibotta user earns $120 a year in real cash back. That could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip. Or you could use your cash back to buy that thing you've been eyeing, that game you've been dying to go to, or the fancy dinner you've been craving. Typical basket of groceries was over $50 more expensive at the end of 22, 2022 than at the beginning of the year due to inflation. It's horrible. 
uh, you can earn two and a half times that in cash back from Ibotta or even more, depending on how much you use Ibotta. And you can earn cash back at hundreds of online brands and retailers too when you start with Ibotta, including Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy, and more. So right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just to try Ibotta out by using code LOCKED when you register. So just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app and use code LOCKED. That's I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Player App Store and use code LOCKED. Yeah, it, you know, that's, <laughs> I think Clyde has made mention of that once or twice as well, you know, about how, how well he's he played in that game and and things of that nature. Although Clyde is also humble to a fault as well, usually. But he's always said, and uh, I watched for the book. I watched a, a video of Game Seven, or at least the first half. I guess let's face it, the game was over. It was like sixty nine forty three or something at the half, and uh, Frazier just torched everybody. Um, and he said to me, uh, "Yes, you know when Willis got the car." Uh, he said, you know, look, I was trying, I had this incredible game, and 36 and 19 or 18, I can't remember how many it says. Um, and he said, I was trying to establish myself as a guard on the level of Jerry West, who dominated, and Oscar and those guys, right? And here I have this fantastic game seven, you know, to deliver the first championship to New York, and, you know, my teammate who hit two shots, and didn't play beyond the first few minutes of Game Five either. Gets the, gets the MVP. Um, mm-hmm. He said I was he said I was pissed off, <laughs> but he also said you know that over the years and you know after we watched the first half, he said I, I can safely say that will you know that the one thing I discounted as a young man and as a headstrong you know kid trying to prove himself to be among the greats that how much inspired I was by Willis and that if he didn't do what he did, then maybe I don't get all juiced up and, you know, do what I did. So he said in that sense, as the emotional leader of the team, Willis did deserve the MVP. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's, it's always going to be one of those things that Clyde like would always say with his rational brain, you know, yeah, I probably should have won it, but with his heart, like what everybody voted with, like yeah, Willis probably should have won it because he he ultimately was the one who sort of sparked everybody along in that game. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit, I, so I know that yeah, and you mentioned this before, you know, and I mentioned it already. I'll plug it again. If people that are listening to this haven't read When the Garden Was Eaten yet, definitely should. It's I found it to be such a fantastic read, honestly. Uh, as someone who grew up in the nineties and didn't really get into the team until the 99 finals run. Like that was my like Nick's, uh, you know, welcome as a fan moment was, was that, you know, so I didn't even get to experience like the nineties really that much. Um, I found it to just be a fascinating read of, of giving a look into like what those teams were, what they meant, um, what every player contributed. And I know that there were so many stories like, that we talked about the last time that we had you on a few years ago uh, with regard to the book, like uh, the story of, of Willis uh, uh, breaking up sort of a fight uh, where Cassie Russell come in kind of heated uh, because he had had a, he, he had been pulled over 
um, by some white police officers and, and racially profiled and then kind of brought that into practice with him and Willis diffused that situation. I remember you saying that a throwaway couple paragraphs in Dave DeBusher's one book about that was sort of the impetus for you to write uh, When the Garden Was Eden. And there was so many other great stories in there as well about Willis and just his his various uh, exploits, the the fight against the Lakers uh, in like, I think it was his second year in the league when he took on like three Lakers, three on one and won the fight and uh, went up to his teammates afterwards and was like, was like, why didn't you guys help me? And Dick Barnett was like, well, you were winning. So we left you. <laughs> and yeah, I think all the, this- the quote was, uh, he, you know, I think they cleaned it up in the book, but he sort of, he sort of said, uh, Willis complained in the locker room, you know, where were you guys? Because remember, uh, Imhoff, Daryl Imhoff had grabbed Willis from behind. That's a really dangerous situation. He really could have gotten cold cocked by Rudy LaRusso with somebody holding on to him. Of course, he shook him off and then all hell broke loose. And in his teammates' defense, you know, the, the fight kind of spilled into the Lakers bench. So the Knicks were on the other side of the court. Not that they, you know, couldn't have come over, you know, uh, you know, as quickly as the thing broke out. But, um, it's true, you know, he was just basically beating the hell out of everybody. And um and uh when he said, you know, where were you guys? And Bardet said, Man, you was winning. Uh so, you know, it's uh you know, the when the guys it's funny because fighting has become you know, in the you know, especially after the malice at the palace, uh it became such a you know, um you know, a blemish on the sport and um it's different today because of, you know, the 24 hour sports, uh, media cycle, uh, all the, all the opportunities for people, whether it's, you know, on cable TV or their phones or streaming to see these things. And even the malice at the palace broke like right before the 11 o'clock sports center. It was almost like, you know, made for primetime sports center. Um, back in those days, there was hardly any video, uh, of those games. And these guys, when they talk about it, I remember talking with Paul Silas, another wonderful guy who recently passed away. Um, they they talked about those fights like badges of honor, like that's how the game was played. And you know, Willis fit that mold to the T. You know, just that the uh, the off court Willis was a gentle man, gentle giant. And uh, but on court, man, he was he was fierce and he did have a temper. Uh, so. You know, but, you know, I was listening to someone on the radio the other day and they were saying that the whole thing with the Lakers was kind of like the Knicks hadn't been a very good team for, you know, for many years. I mean, the early 50s, um, you know, they made the NBA finals, uh, I think, two or three years in a row, um, uh, never won. But, uh, you know, into the 60s, they, they weren't very good. And that night at the Garden, um, you know, I, Willis kind of made a statement that, you know, we're not getting pushed around anymore. You know, those days are over. This is the start of something good. And it took them another, another couple of years for them to become contenders, but it really did kind of signal something. Uh, something was up with that team. And, um, you know, and that was all about Willis. So you you alluded to it a second ago. You know, obviously that was the that was the on court Willis. That was the ultra competitive, willing to throw it all on the line for his teammates and his team and everything Willis. But 
I thought you summed it up really nicely in just one paragraph that I pulled from your eulogy of, of Willis uh, that I'll just read real quick. Off the court, Reed was a much gentler giant. And this is literally a paragraph right after you did, detailed the, the fight with the Lakers. So uh, it kind of fits perfectly. But off the court, Reed was a much gentler giant. Flashing an easy smile and typically extending a large hand to greet friends and acquaintances. Within the Knicks organization, he was known to be generous with teammates in an era where financial rewards in professional sports were not as substantial as they are today. That's that's something that I feel like always comes up, that last part about how generous he was with his time, with his money, with everything that always comes up when Clyde talks about him and something that clearly made a huge mark on Clyde uh, growing up in the city as a basketball player. Uh, As far as like Willis always made it a point, it seems like to extend a hand to the rookies to like make sure that they knew what it meant to be a Nick and play basketball for the Knicks. And, you know, that's something that the Knicks struggled to find for so long. Um, And I think now we're finally starting to find again in terms of having, culture setters you know and that's that's like the the big buzzword and has been the buzzword for the last probably like 10 years in the nba is like well how's the culture you know like how's the team culture like can you just seamlessly integrate guys into what you have and you know turn the whole team into a winner uh and it seems like willis was sort of like the epitome of that with what he did off the court and how well he treated his teammates like picking Clyde up from the airport when he first flew in as a draft pick and showing him around the city and, you know, taking him to Times Square and all this other stuff and always rooming with the rookies and, and all that. I mean, in, in your reporting, uh, through for when the garden was eaten and, and just in your time knowing and talking to Willis, like what were, what were some of your takeaways from him just as a man and, just how he was as a person, like off the basketball court. Well, he was not, um, an ego driven guy, very proud guy, but he didn't have an ego. He didn't, um, he didn't need to be told how wonderful he was. Um, you know, he really, uh, I, I think he had a real sense of, you know, how good a player he was. And, um, and, you know, he wanted to be, treated fairly and paid, you know, uh, what he was worth and all that stuff. But there's something about him, and I don't know if this is just something innate, the way he was raised, uh, but there was something about him. He just, you know, you often hear about people, they'll say he gets it, right? And that's, <laughs> that's the way I always felt about Willis. He just gets it. Um, we are talking before about helping teammates. There was a kid on that team who did room with Willis, uh, because Willis would take the rookies under his wing to kind of help them navigate, you know, the transition from the college game to the pro game. But there was a kid on that 69-70 team from St. John named John Warren. And, uh, he's a Long Island kid, I believe. And, um, I'll tell you a story about how, uh, what Warren told me that during that season, um, he was, he w- he had a, a fiance, he was supposed to get married to this young woman. And, um, uh, something happened where she got, uh, really upset with him and, you know, wasn't answering the phone. And it, he, he was a little distraught because uh, I don't know what he did or, you know, didn't do. I mean, who knows? But, um, he told me that he was clearly 
you know, just dragging uh, through, you know, a week or so. And finally, Willis had had enough. And he said, tomorrow, you, you and me are going out to her house in Long Island. And they drove out to Long Island, and they knocked on the door. And Willis said, Willis said, I'm Willis Reed. Can we come in? We're going to settle this, right? He played mediator in the relationship between Warren and his fiance. I mean, this is the kind of, these are the kind of things that Willis would do. He would loan people money um, because, again, these guys weren't making, especially if you weren't, if you're only a marginal player, these guys weren't making a lot of money. Um, he would get dates for people, you know. I think Walt, I think it was Walt who said when he joined the team, Willis took him out and got him a date in New York. He mentioned he mentioned that on the broadcast, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so you know it was things like that, and um, that made him, you know, the captain. And and it's no coincidence that he was named captain of the team not long after he tore apart the Lakers, because they saw that you know he was a natural leader, and you know that goes back to the whole thing with Cassie Russell in Detroit, where. Um, you know, when we did the film, you know, it's a lot harder to incorporate all the little details from the book into the movie. So one thing that was kind of left out was the re- sort of the end result of um, that whole episode where, you know, uh, Cassie gets, you know, racially profiled coming out of Ann Arbor where he'd gone to college. The Knicks were holed up in Detroit for two or three days and they're practicing. And so he drives to Detroit and he shows up and he starts elbowing the white guys, Bradley and Don May and, and Mike Reardon and so on. And, and now Red Holzman was a, um, you know, he, he liked, he had a mature team and he liked to let them police themselves as possible and usually through Willis. So he just stood there and watched this, you know, go on. And finally Willis stopped practice and said, Cassie, what the hell are you doing? And before Cassie could, you know, stop himself, he said, be quiet, Uncle Tom. And now imagine that. Willis Reed grew up in the Jim Crow South. I mean, I've been to the town with him um, where he grew up, Bernice, Louisiana. It was an old mill town. Um, had two stoplights. But, you know, he showed me the, the, you know, the stores where he would, he'd have to go in the back if he wanted ice cream because he was black. And he introduced me to, you know, the, the man that his mother worked for as a domestic. Uh, this was a guy who understood what segregation was and what those laws were. But at the same time, you know, he looked at the world in a positive way. He didn't bring all that uh, bitterness into what he did. And so in that moment, when he might have torn Kazi apart, Kazi probably realized after he said what he said, was like, uh-oh, I just signed my death sentence uh, because Kazi was a rookie playing his second game at the Garden the night that Willis tore apart the Lakers bench. Uh, so he saw Willis at his most furious, right? Mm-hmm. So in that moment, Willis is, you know, I'm not saying he was consciously thinking, but something, something that he had, some quality, uh, held him back. And instead of punching Kathy in the face, he said, uh, you know, something to the extent of, uh, you know, uh, you better start playing the right way or this Uncle Tom is going to be whooping some ass. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, he said, 
you better he gave him the out. You better start playing the right way or right? But he gave him the opportunity to gather himself and step back. And Cavi later apologized, got back to playing the game back to scrimmaging. But bottom line is I think Willis understood that Cavi Russell, even though he had lost his starting position to Bradley by then, that Cavi was an essential member of that team. He was their instant offense off the bench. And sure enough, in game seven of the of the first round against the Baltimore Bullets, who had the Knicks had destroyed in the playoffs the previous year, but this the second in nineteen seventy, the Bullets put up a big fight. You know, they were maturing as a team with Earl Monroe and Gus Johnson and Jack Marin and Wes Unsell, and they put up a hell of a struggle. And in Game 7, Bill Bradley was foul-plagued. I think he shot like two for nine. And as the Bullets struggled to stay within striking reach, uh, they never really got blown out. Um, Cassie came off the bench in the fourth quarter and hit like four really clutch baskets to help the Knicks stave them off. And, you know, if Willis had torn him apart, I think, you know, it, there's a possibility uh, it tears that team apart because, you know, there was a lot of racial strife in this country during those days and in the middle of the civil rights era. And if Willis beat the hell out of him, he might have emasculated him and lost him. Mm-hmm. But by keeping him, you know, giving him a chance to kind of cool off and back down, he got back to business and he winds up. You know, you could argue saving their season. Well, Harvey, uh, this has been just a fantastic conversation once again, just like the last time I got to talk to you and and talk about Willis and and those teams. Um, But as we start wrapping up here, I figured I would just give you the floor. Is there any is there any final thoughts that you have on Willis or any like stories that you had from, I mean, you, you knew him, you knew him and, and spoke to him at very, a lot of different times of his life, you know, as the, the coach of the Knicks. Um, and then just throughout his, his long basketball career that was after his time with the, with the Knicks and everything else. And then of course, researching your book, like, do you have any, any final thoughts before we wrap up here on, on Willis? Yeah, I would like to, to, to leave your listeners with this last story. Uh, it was when, from when I was reporting when the garden was eaten and, um, which was a privilege to do. These were, you know, spending quality time with, with the guys who were the icons of my youth. And, um, so, uh, I went down to Louisiana and Willis had built a, a house. He actually built a whole property with, um, man-made ponds so he could fish and, his best friend who had been his high school teammate, a guy named Howard Brown, he let him build a small house on the property, Three Ponds Road, that was the name of the, uh, that was the address, uh, it's in, uh, Ruston, Louisiana. And, um, so I'm sitting in Willis's great room in front of a huge screen, big screen TV, and I had put in my bag before I left a bunch of CDs uh, when I was started researching the book, I, I wanted to watch some of these old games again, or if a couple of cases the first time. And it's really hard to get NBA old, really old NBA video. Just aren't a lot of, they just didn't do a lot or save a lot. But the Knicks helped me get, um, get, uh, videos of 
like game seven of the finals, game, uh, game seven of the Boston series in 73 when they went up to Boston and won game seven at the Boston Garden. Uh, but also, and this was a very grainy old, like a scout video. It jumped around a little bit. Game five of the 70 finals, which is the game Willis got hurt. So we're sitting in his great room and I say to him, Willis, you know, I was hoping to watch a game with him. And I, he says, so what, what, which games do you have? And I said, uh, you know, I tell him and then I mentioned game five. And he goes, his eyes light up and he goes, you have game five? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's right in my bag. And he goes, I've never seen that game. And I said, you kidding? And he said, no, I was in the back of the locker room. I listened to Marv's broadcast on the radio while they were tending to my, my leg. I was in excruciating pain. So I said, let's watch it. So we're watching it, and, you know, he describes, he's looking at, they you have the video of him, you know, trying to dribble around Wilt, and goes down on the floor, writhing in pain. And he said he had a bad, you know, his his one knee was bad, and he thought he was probably protecting it. So, you know, the other leg, he pulled that muscle. Um, in any event, we watch the video, and he dials up Bill Bradley, and he goes, uh, he goes, Senator, uh, I'm sitting here with Harvey, and and we're watching great game five. What a great game. And he's talking like a fan, right? Because he's watching, he's watching them win the game without him, right? Mm -hmm. And he's so thrilled that he's getting this opportunity after all these years to actually see those, some of those famous plays like Dave Stallway, uh, driving around Wilt and scoring on a, like a reverse layup, which brought the garden down. Um, I'll just say this, like, you know, there's like a hundred thousand people you know, in the New York area who claimed to have been at Game 7. I claimed to have been at Game 5. I was at Game 5. I had my, a friend whose uncle had two tickets and was traveling, and we got to go. Um, we were sitting in the nosebleed seats up in the blues, but we were there. Uh, but, so anyway, he, I say, well, Willis, you want to keep the video? And he goes, no, I don't want to keep it, but uh, forever, but it's your video. But um, do you, you know, can I, can I, I'd like to show it to couple of my friends and my wife and I said sure so he said I'll send it back to you sure enough a couple of weeks later uh, an envelope comes in the mail and um, I open it up and there's a little note attached to the case of the, the DVD and it says um, thanks Har for the video our greatest victory and I thought about that for a second he considered that team's greatest victory to be one that he had absolutely nothing to do with. And that is the measure of the man. And that's what I would like to leave your listeners with. That's who Willis Reed was. The ultimate team guy. Well, that's a that's a really lovely story and a lovely tribute to the guy. And, and I really appreciate that story. I love that. Um, and I'm sure that everybody else will that's listening too. Uh, so with that, I think we can... I wouldn't possibly want to sully that as the final note that we end on. Um, so I'll say thank you for coming on, Harvey, so much uh, to help me uh, honor Willis Reed here and, you know, the captain, the forever captain of the Knicks who who clearly made a lot of impacts uh, throughout multiple generations of Knicks. Um, but Harvey, before I let you go, 
do you have anything that you want to that you want to uh, turn people onto that you're working on or or direct them to any of your work that you know you've you've put out recently uh, before I send you off? Uh, I'm not working on anything and any major projects right now. Um, you know, I would just say uh, if you are interested in 